0: Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com Wondery. Rocketmoney.com Wondery.
1: Marine Le Pen's rise to the top of the French presidential polls has been a surprise, but she's touched a nationalist anti-immigrant nerve. And if she wins, Muslim dress, like the so-called burkini a full-body swimsuit for women, would be banned in public.
2: France isn't burkinis la France on the beach. France is France Brigitte Bardot. Bardot.
1: Should uh, Muslim people be allowed to wear headscarves?
2: Non, moi je suis no, I'm opposed to wearing doil, headscarves in public places. Loi, enfin. That's non, not ça n'est France. Pas ça, la France.
3: Thirty-three men and women were killed when the American ship El Faro vanished in the Bermuda Triangle during a massive hurricane. Found at a depth deeper than the Titanic, the ship was upright, but from the mangled name on her stern to her bow, all 791 feet revealed a savage beating. Tonight, investigators share El Faro's final moments. You were listening to the voices of the lost, and you knew it. Yes, yes. And that was really tough to listen
4: to.
5: These caged lions have never had it so good. They got to this temporary rescue center thanks to the unrelenting efforts of Jan Creamer and Tim Phillips. Creamer and Phillips told us all 24 lions here had been repeatedly beaten in traveling circuses. The lions sounded like they wanted to tell us themselves. This was the first time we had an interview interrupted by roaring.
3: I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight... On 60 Minutes.
6: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: We begin tonight with a story about a populist politician who rails against free trade, wants to get tougher on immigration, is skeptical of NATO, and sympathetic to Russia. We're talking about a woman named Marine Le Pen the candidate in France's upcoming presidential election, who shocked the political establishment with her meteoric rise. Shocked because the name Le Pen has long been associated with anti-Semitism and racism in Europe. Her party, the National Front, used to be on the fringes of French politics. But in recent years, Marine Le Pen has given it a makeover. And she's now riding a wave of populist anger sweeping the West. With Britain's vote to leave the European Union and the election of President Trump. And just like Mr. Trump's rise, the rise of Marine Le Pen is turning conventional political wisdom on its head. The polls say you can't win. <laughs>
2: Yes. They also said that Brexit wasn't going to happen, that Donald Trump wasn't going to be elected, wasn't even going to be his party's nominee. Well, they're saying that less and less now. They are much more cautious, much more cautious. Now. The nationalist
1: policies Marine Le Pen embraces are gaining supporters throughout France and around the world is hostile to free trade, rejects open borders, and says globalization, promoted for decades by France's political elites, is destroying her country. So how do you explain what is happening? Did leaders go too far?
6: Yes,
2: yes, of course they've gone too far. Globalization has become an ideology with no constraints. And now nations are forcing themselves back into the debate. Nations with borders we control with people that we listen to, with real economies, not Wall Street economies, but rather factories and farmers. And this goes against unregulated globalization, a wild, savage globalization.
1: Savage globalization?
2: Yes, savage, of course. Wild globalization has benefited some, but it's been a catastrophe for most.
1: A catastrophe, she says, which has ravaged the French economy as jobs have faded away and immigrants have flooded in, many of them Muslim immigrants from North Africa, who Le Pen says are draining resources, rejecting French values, and transforming the culture. One of the concerns of many of your supporters is that immigration, current immigration, is changing the character of France. It's changing the spirit of the country.
2: It's because of this massive immigration and more in some places. France's image has undeniably changed. There are a number of neighborhoods where you are no longer living a French life. That's undeniable.
1: France is still a country of bistros and fine Bordeaux, baguettes and bucolic churches. But immigrants now make up 12 percent of the population, and they brought with them new beliefs and customs couscous and kebabs, headscarves, and an outfit called the burkini, a full-body swimsuit for Muslim women that's become the latest flashpoint in a raging culture war. We were surprised at just how far Marine Le Pen was willing to go to enforce assimilation.
2: France isn't burkinis on the beach. France is Bridget Bardot.
1: That's France. Should uh, Muslim people be allowed to wear headscarves?
2: No, I'm opposed to wearing headscarves in public places. That's not France. There's something I just don't understand. The people who come to France, why would they want to change France? To live in France the same way they lived back home?
1: It's not just headscarves. Le Pen says she would ban yarmulkes in public, any conspicuous symbol of religious belief. Would a Sikh person allowed to be wear a turban?
6: No, not in public. We don't have a lot of Sikhs in France. We've got some, but we don't really
2: hear much from them or about them, which is good news.
1: Her views go to the heart of a debate that's been raging in the country for decades over what it means to be French and who's responsible for the failure of some immigrants to become fully integrated into French society.
2: Massive immigration brings with it cultures that are sometimes in contradiction with our values.
1: There are many people in France who view your party as anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim.
2: je n'ai pas, je ne mène pas de guerre de religion. I'm not waging a religious war. It's clear that in France, everyone has the right to practice their religion, to worship as they choose. My war is against Islamic fundamentalism.
1: Le Pen blames fundamentalism, but also immigration for the terror attacks in France that have killed more than 200 people in the last two years, though half of the attackers were actually born in the country. She wants to shut down the mosque that she says encourage fundamentalism, tighten borders, drastically reduce legal immigration, and expel all illegal immigrants. You're talking about deporting them.
2: Expulsion—it's the law. It's French law.
1: There is a lot of fear among some immigrants about the idea of you becoming president.
2: I think a lot of people are trying to scare them, but in reality, they have nothing to fear. You know, people who behave need not worry. Foreigners in France who hold a job, who respect our laws, our codes, have absolutely nothing to worry about. Inquiétude à avoir.
1: Many people are worried, though, because the Le Pen name carries a lot of baggage in France. Her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, is a political pugilist and provocateur who co-founded the National Front in the early 70s. Party became a haven for racists and anti-Semites. Jean-Marie Le Pen famously dismissed the Nazi gas chambers as a mere detail of history courts have repeatedly found him guilty of questioning the Holocaust. He is a despised figure. One night when Marine was eight, a massive bomb was detonated just outside the family apartment. Incredibly, no one was killed. She took us back to her old neighborhood and the site of the attack.
2: The building was torn apart. The back of the building was completely destroyed.
1: Were you inside at the time?
2: Yes, we were sleeping, and the bomb went off at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's really strange. I have not been back for 40 years. Never. Her father's
1: bigotry cast a long shadow. At school, Le Pen says teachers who resented his politics took it out on her. She had to develop a thick skin at an early age.
2: It was my first entry into politics. You're prepared for anything? I think so, yes.
1: (laughs) Jean-Marie Le Pen ran for president five times but was never able to be anything more than an opposition figure. When Maureen took over his National Front party in 2011, she began rebranding it, banishing party members who made anti-Semitic remarks. It was a process that came to be known as the de-demonization of the National Front. Two years ago, in a move worthy of Shakespeare, she kicked her own father out of the party he founded. Do you have any contact with him?
6: No, no.
2: No, I don't have any contact with him now. We broke up. Broke up politically. It was a very clear decision on my part to have a political break, which he turned into a family breakup, a personal breakup. That was his choice.
1: Le Pen is now a practiced politician.
6: Expulser tout étranger qui exprime des sympathies pour l'État islamique.
1: As a member of the European Parliament, she spent years polishing her persona as a straight talking working mom and French everywoman, doing her best to make people forget her party's past. It's interesting when you go to a Marine Le Pen rally or you look at her posters, you don't see her last name you don't even see the really the name of the party very much.
4: But she's right. If she wants to succeed, she must cut all links with that past. She is the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen. And for her, that's an obstacle.
1: Nona Mayer is a professor in Paris and considered a leading authority on the national front. She's tainted because of her last name.
4: Yes, she yeah. is a Le Pen. That was and in France,
1: helped. that name is still toxic. Yes. But Mayer says that while her father and his anti-Semitic rhetoric may be gone, the nationalist ideology of the National Front hasn't really changed.
4: There have been cosmetic changes. Cosmetic changes. For the rest, at the heart of the party, the very base of its message, it's the idea that you're going to keep the jobs, uh, social benefits, uh, the uh, everything, uh, employment, uh, all will be reserved to the French, French citizens.
1: French citizens, instead of immigrants to the country, will have priority over... Access to jobs, housing, welfare?
4: Everything. You have two kinds of people living in France, the French and the others.
1: That view of French society, us versus them, is gaining new converts among people who never would have considered voting for the National Front before. We've tried other candidates, Emmanuel Rigno says. There's only one person we haven't tried, and that's Marine. So we say, let's give her a shot. In a country with 10% unemployment, twice what it is in the U.S., Le Pen has built a stronghold in the northern Rust Belt, where factories have closed and jobs have disappeared. While she may be a candidate of the far right, Some of her policies come straight out of the playbook of the French left.
6: She promises
1: more government benefits and greater worker protections. When Donald Trump says, make America great again, are you saying, make France great again?
2: Yes, of course. I've been saying that for many years. We are a great nation, which has a lot to offer to the world. But to offer something to the world, France has to remain France. France.
1: She calls for a radical shift in the country's foreign policy, vowing to renegotiate its membership in the European Union or else leave altogether, a move that could result in the breakup of the EU. And just like President Trump, she's questioned the role of NATO and advocates closer ties with Russia. What is your admiration for, for Russia, for Vladimir Putin?
2: Look, I'm not a fan in a rock concert, you see. I am a political leader in a great nation of the world.
6: What interests
2: me are France's interests.
1: You don't believe Russia is a threat for Europe?
2: I don't believe that at all. I think that's a big scam.
1: Invasion in Ukraine, invasion of Crimea.
2: I'll tell you what the danger is for Europe. It's carrying out a cold war against Russia and pushing Russia into China's arms. That's the threat to Europe.
1: You don't think Vladimir Putin, though, is... A killer is a, is a, a threat to, to France, to others in this region?
2: No, I don't believe it is so. Nothing Vladimir Putin has done would make me reach that conclusion.
1: Her views on Russia and Vladimir Putin have drawn scrutiny, particularly because three years ago, a Russian bank loaned her more than $11 million to fund her party. Your critics will say that that influences you in your opinion of Russia.
2: Why would it influence me? When you take out a loan, what's your obligation other than paying it back? You have no other obligation. But if you know an American bank that wants to lend me money, by all means, because I'm still looking for funds, particularly since French banks, for political reasons, have refused to give us a loan to allow us to campaign.
1: That Russian loan and a widening probe into her party's finances have not quieted the frenzy that now follows Marine Le Pen everywhere. With less than two months to go before the first votes are cast, she and her party are closer to power than ever.
4: Vive le
6: peuple! Vive la République! Vive la France! to play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment and more. Play it at play.it.
3: 33 men and women were killed when the American ship El Faro vanished in the Bermuda Triangle. In Spanish, El Faro means the lighthouse, but when she sank in 2015, no beacon led to her resting place. The families of the crew were desperate for answers. Why did the captain sail into a hurricane? Why couldn't the ship survive? Getting to the bottom of a mystery lying deeper than the Titanic was up to the National Transportation Safety Board. Last year, we showed you the hunt for El Faro. Now, investigators have a wealth of new evidence because they have heard the voices of the lost. Exploring the mystery off the Bahamas took 10 months of patience millions of dollars and technology able to reach three miles into a world of total darkness. We were aboard the U.S. Navy's Apache that discovered the wreck in October 2015, 30 days after El Faro went down. The ship was found upright, but from the mangled name on her stern to her bow, all 791 feet revealed the wounds of a savage beating she had collided with a hurricane named Joaquin. This is Captain Michael Davidson's last report.
5: I have a marine emergency and we had a, a, a hull breach, a scuttle blew open during a storm. We have water down in three holes with a heavy lift. We've lost the main propulsion unit. The engineers cannot get
3: it going. Captain Davidson was a 30-year veteran of the sea, married with two daughters. His crew included third mate Jeremy Ream on the far right, married with a son and a daughter. Danielle Randolph, the second mate, had dreamed of the sea since she was a little girl. And the chief engineer, Richard Puzzateri, had a wife and a baby girl.
4: This accident was unique in the fact that we didn't have any survivors to interview that would uh, enlighten us to the events and the situation that took place aboard the vessel
3: as they approached the storm you were missing a lot of pieces from the jigsaw puzzle absolutely the key piece of the puzzle had been denied brian young the safety board's lead investigator this was el faro's voyage data recorder like the voice recorders on airliners it captured the conversations on the bridge and it should have been on top of this structure called the house but the top of the house the bridge and the deck below had been ripped away. They were eventually found half a mile from the wreck, but still there was no sign of the Voyage Data Recorder, also called a VDR. The search vessel Apache ran out of time. The big challenge was locating the VDR, which was only about a foot by eight inches. Safety Board Investigator Eric Stolzenberg returned six months later in April of last year with the research vessel Atlantis, Sonar found 150 targets, and they began to visit each one. So in a way, you're stumbling in the dark, and even though something should be right in front of you, it isn't. It can be 10 more meters off to the left or the right. It's like crawling on your hands and knees with a flashlight. Just that's a good description, Uh, yes. After five days, their light flashed on a strip of reflective tape on the VDR. Four months later, special equipment was brought in to grab it. No commercial recorder had ever been recovered this deep, where the pressure is nearly 7,000 pounds per square inch. This capsule was contained inside the larger capsule. Salvaging the clues was up to Jim Ritter's lab at the NTSB in Washington. This is the actual uh, circuit board that contains the memory. This tiny device with these two memory chips right here. Contain the entire 26 hours of information from the Voyage Data Recorder. This card captured the sound from six microphones on the bridge. By law, the audio was never released to the public, but investigators produced a 500-page transcript. It was incredibly moving. We
4: listened to the entire VDR from start to finish, and at the end of it, the team was completely silent. Nobody spoke. What was it on the tape
3: that moved you so much?
4: We knew when that recording was going to end, and we knew what a tragic ending it was going to be. Whereas I know the crew did not know that. And that was very difficult for us to watch that clock count down to the end of the recording.
3: You were listening to the voices of the lost, and you knew it. Yes. Yes. And that was really tough to listen to. The recording begins the day before the disaster. El Faro was 150 miles from Jacksonville, headed south to Puerto Rico, with a cargo ranging from frozen chickens to cars. Joaquin at the time was just a tropical storm, but Captain Davidson ordered a course change to keep his distance. On the voyage recorder, he's heard saying to the chief mate, this is why you watch the weather all the time. Later, he predicted, it should be fine. Then he corrected himself, not should be, we're going to be fine.
4: What we have learned from the VDR is that multiple weather reports were being sent to the ship. The watch officers on the bridge were receiving weather reports that were printed out in black and white, and mostly text. And then the captain was receiving a graphically depicted weather report in his office every six hours. Which were more accurate? The ones on the bridge were more accurate in terms of time, whereas the system that the captain
3: received was six hours behind. The weather information the captain was receiving in his office, a deck below the bridge, was six hours old. Correct. In a storm that is developing more rapidly than most hurricanes ever do. Correct. After the storm strengthened into a hurricane, the chief mate, Steve Schultz, suggested another course change, and Davidson agreed. Davidson said, we'll be passing clear on the backside of it. The faster we're going, the better. Then the captain left the bridge for eight hours. El Faro had 11 hours left. How unusual in your experience for a captain to be eight hours in his cabin going into a storm like this
4: Um, it's a difficult question to answer this captain on this accident was convinced that they were on the better side of the storm ready and that they were going to beat the storm but he was using the information he had which was outdated to make these decisions
3: That was critical because the hurricane was getting closer, tracking farther south than forecast. At 11 p.m., third mate Jeremy Ream called the captain in his quarters to say that in five hours, El Faro would be 22 miles from the center, with gusts to 120 and strengthening. After 1 a.m., second mate Danielle Randolph called the captain again to say, it isn't looking good right now. Twice, Ream and Randolph suggested this new route, shown in green, but Captain Davidson declined. Any idea what he's doing down there? Is he asleep? There were some references made by the mates after the phone call suggesting he may have been sleeping. Why didn't the junior officers, sensing danger, just decide to change course on their own if the captain wasn't there? All officers are taught to respect the chain of command.
4: And to change the ship's course without the captain's um,
3: permission is, is very drastic. Second mate Randolph sent an email to her mother, Lori Bobolo.
6: She never wanted to worry me. But for her to send me an email during to say, heading straight for it, give my love to everyone, she knew. She knew she was, they were doomed. I, I'm sorry, but she knew.
3: And when you read that email at that moment?
6: I knew she was gone. I knew that was it.
3: At 4 a.m., after eight hours below, the captain returned to the bridge, saying he'd been sleeping like a baby. Now the storm was upon them. They had three hours left. About the heavy seas, Davidson told the crew, this is every day in Alaska, this is what it's like. But then Davidson's ship began to fail him. Water was pouring into a cargo hold from an open hatch and a ruptured pipe. El Faro leaned into a 15-degree list. The extreme tilt of the ship caused the engine's lubricating oil to flow away from the pump that was meant to circulate it.
4: Every indication we've heard from the VDR said that there was a loss of lube oil pressure to the engine. So now the oil isn't circulating in the engine. And the engine has safety shutdowns if there is no oil the engine will shut itself down
3: they are dead in the water and at the mercy of the sea El Faro was battered by waves as high as 30 feet Captain Davidson ordered chief mate Steve Schultz to investigate the flooding in the hold Richard Puzziteri the chief engineer was fighting to restart the engine in the audio the crew on the bridge seems calm deliberate One makes coffee, and another says, give me the Splenda, not the regular sugar. They had 50 minutes left.
4: They weren't able to keep up with the water coming in. The list is getting worse. The engine has failed. They're running out of
3: options. At 7.12 a.m., the captain ordered second mate Randolph to send a distress message. Cargo containers crashed overboard. The bow went under. The abandoned ship signal has sounded,
4: and the captain directs everybody to leave the ship.
3: But Davidson would not leave the bridge. A crewman was trapped there. The list was so great that the man couldn't climb up to the exit. Is there panic?
4: We only hear what's on the bridge, but the captain was extremely calm right to the end.
3: The crewman said, you're going to leave me. I'm not leaving you, Davidson said. Let's go. I can't, said the seaman. I'm a goner. No, you're not, Davidson urged. Let's go. It was not an easy thing to read. Claudia Schultz is the widow of chief mate Steve Schultz.
4: I didn't let my kids read until this day they haven't read it.
3: Because it hurts too much? Yes,
4: it's too painful to read their father's last words.
3: Tina Rehm is the widow of Jeremy Rehm, who had suggested a different course.
2: I felt relief because I was able to read it to know what happened that day, and I I read it like I was with him that day, like I was standing there with him reading. So I was relieved. I didn't have to
6: use my imagination anymore.
3: At 7.39 a.m., there was a building rumble. Captain Davidson yelled to his trapped crewman, it's time to come this way. And the recording ends. The crew performed heroically, you know, and they, they didn't just give up. Frank Positari is the father of the chief engineer, Richard Positari. The transcript uh, read like a, a suspense novel, and you were expecting, or I was expecting, oh, it's going to be a happy ending, you know. But, the, you know, going through it, I knew, you know, what I was reading was going to be the end of, of the, the vessel and, uh, you know, in the crew. The safety board's conclusions are expected later this year. Of the 33, not one of the crew was recovered. Their only remains are their words that tell a mariner's story of life and death and the unforgiving sea.
6: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
5: For 25 years, Jan Creamer and Tim Phillips have made it their mission to stop animal abuse in circuses. They caused a furor in their native England when they released video they'd secretly recorded of one of Britain's most prestigious trainers abusing circus animals. Prosecutors used their footage to convict the trainer of animal cruelty. Then, this relentless couple went global, sending teams to infiltrate circuses around the world to document the mistreatment of animals. Their work helped lead to local laws banning most wild animals from circuses in more than 15 U.S. states and to national bans in more than 20 countries. Their latest successes have been across South America— where they spent years recording animal cruelty on hidden cameras. We caught up with Jan and Tim in Peru, along with two dozen lucky lions they'd recently rescued from traveling circuses. A warning. Some of the pictures later in this report are disturbing. These caged lions have never had it so good. They got to this temporary rescue center thanks to the unrelenting efforts of Jan Creamer and Tim Phillips and members of the organization they founded, Animal Defenders International. Creamer and Phillips told us all 24 lions here had been repeatedly beaten in traveling circuses. The lions sounded like they wanted to tell us themselves.
2: Hold
5: on, just one second. This was the first time we had an
6: interview interrupted by Rory.
7: This is their morning song?
6: Morning song. If it was you or I, it'd be, where the hell's my coffee? Um, <laughs>
5: I do sound like that when I haven't had my
6: coffee. Jan and Tim
5: rescue more than lions. They launched their South America campaign
7: after seeing a chimpanzee named Toto chained outside a circus in Chile. So they'd smashed his teeth to punish him. They were stubbing cigarettes out on him.
6: Jan shot that picture, and he just gazed across at the Andes. It almost looked like he was looking mournfully at what he'd lost. Mm. We'd determined to rescue him, and we took him all the way home to Africa.
5: A judge, appalled by Toto's treatment, had given custody to Jan and Tim.
7: Our role is to take them from, from where they are, where they're suffering, and put them where they, they need to be.
5: In South America, their team recorded this hidden camera footage of abuse, which is hard
6: to watch. What we did was we put a team undercover inside the South American circuses. And they stayed there for almost two years, just gathering evidence, filming, photographing. So you're, you're living in the heart of the circus, but that's how you get the really amazing evidence.
5: Many of their pictures were taken by undercover cameraman Alexis Diaz. When circus workers discovered what he was doing, they beat him up and broke his leg. Still, he kept working to collect evidence.
7: Lots of our evidence has been used by prosecutors uh, for cruelty convictions. Just one beating of an animal isn't going to secure a conviction. You have to show a pattern of behavior.
5: Some circuses claim they train wild animals without abuse, using food and positive reinforcement. But Creamer and Phillips insist beatings are routine because performing tricks is unnatural for wild animals. They only comply out of fear.
6: If you've got a dangerous animal, that means subjugation. Subjugation means beating.
7: Absolutely. It's all about control and how they're going to make it do what they want it to do. So it's a kick, it's a punch, it's a beating. And really we've seen that
6: everywhere we've gone. Everywhere? Yeah, in Europe, in America, in South America. There are certain consistencies in the way that these circus animals are looked after
7: using violence is the way that these animals are made to do things that they don't want to do they don't want to get up and perform so you have they have to force them to do it
5: so when you made this video evidence public
6: what was the reaction The reaction was instant. I mean, it it really was just outrage. And then the politicians were starting to hear about it and saying, well, we should probably have legislation here. Bolivia was the first
5: country in South America to ban wild animal acts. Other countries have followed suit.
7: Absolutely. Colombia, Peru, there's over 30 countries.
5: But in Peru, the new law led to their next challenge, enforcement. Lion acts were outlawed, but local police were not equipped to pick up the lions or care for them. So Jan and Tim said their organization would take in the lions. They brought police for protection during the seizures because the circuses resisted handing over their money makers.
6: Yeah, they threatened to release the animals into the streets. Seriously,
5: to st- let wild yeah. animals run through the streets that, if you come down hard on them. That's right. When they raided the circus in Cuzco, Peru, they rescued three lions. But the circus refused to release its star attraction, a lion named Smith. The circus demanded police get another court order for Smith. While Jan and Tim worked on that, Smith had to keep performing.
7: He was unstable and upset because his family had been broken up and then he was forced into the ring that was not the time to put someone in the ring with him
5: a grade school teacher volunteered to have Smith jump over her but Smith had other ideas Amazingly, she jumped right up and was not badly hurt because he'd grabbed her by her collar. Some viewers wanted Smith killed, but Jan and Tim came back to save him. And after what Smith did to the teacher, the circus was forced to give him up. One year later, Smith's favorite toys are soccer balls. They don't last long. Ah, Sharp teeth. So have you seen a big difference in his behavior since he came here?
7: Huge differences. What's changed? He's, he's, he's not frightened, he's playful, confident.
5: How was he before? Wired, nervous, neurotic. Why does he not have a mane?
7: When you castrate the males, they lose their mane.
5: Do you have a favorite?
7: I do have a very soft spot for Leo. So Leo's getting special attention again.
6: The very first lion we rescued and loaded on this was an old lion called Leo. And he just looked broken. Every tooth had been smashed, all of his canines. And he just looked like he'd given up. Within weeks, his coat was looking healthier. And he's just blossomed. He's like a real kitten again. He too likes playing with soccer
5: balls, but with few teeth. He's the one who just gums it? Yes, yes. Each ball lasts a lot
6: longer.
5: Rapunzel also has made a remarkable transition. Jan said when they came to take her from the circus, Rapunzel had never been out of her cage.
7: She'd been born in there. Her mother had died in there, her father had died in there, and she'd never been outside. So when we brought our cage up to it and we opened the doors to try to transfer her, She was afraid.
5: Jan said it took more than an hour to entice her out. Rapunzel was also afraid of hay because she'd never seen it. But as you can see, she's gotten over that. Plenty of circuses like this one still are crisscrossing Peru with lots of human acts to entertain. But the government told us, thanks to the efforts of Jan and Tim... There are no more wild animals, not a single one, still performing in Peru. Lions that had been malnourished now get to feast on whole chickens. After plenty of food and medical attention, Jan and Tim found them a permanent home at a sanctuary in South Africa. But that would mean a long flight from Peru, and they'd have to coax two dozen skittish lions into travel crates in time for takeoff. Tim told us the transfers would be tricky and
6: dangerous. Might have a few problems. Worst-case scenario is we have to anesthetize an animal to get them loaded in order to catch the flight. There can be problems with it, The, the big lion... Anesthetic. It does lead to seizures.
5: The transfers didn't start well.
7: Come on, people. Don't, don't have all night.
5: But then, one by one, they lured the lions into their crates. That was easy. God, he's a big fella. Several objected to the smaller space.
7: Okay, this one needs to be moved.
5: This is going quite well.
7: We're actually really
4: fast.
5: Smith, who had dragged the teacher, also seemed ready to leave. Finally, the last lion was reluctant Rapunzel. Remember during her rescue, it took more than an hour to get her to leave her circus cage? Once again, she refused to leave the known for the unknown. With time running out, They had to
7: tranquilize her. This is the scariest thing that we have to do um, with an animal, but we had no choice but to do it. She wasn't settling down.
5: Uno, dos, tres. Fearing she could suffer a seizure, they quickly gave Rapunzel the antidote and hoped they'd given it to her in time.
7: She's awake. The cages, the cages are empty. They really are. That feels good.
5: (laughs) The drive to the airport... (laughs) ..began what would be a two-day journey. Jan, Tim, and vet flew with the lions without incident. Then, in South Africa, we caught up with them being transported through the countryside after what had been the biggest lion airlift in history, 33 lions, including nine rescued from Colombia.
6: Seeing these animals... When you've taken them to as close as we can give them to freedom, really is what it's all about.
5: The lions still are fenced in, but they have plenty of room to roam, more than 30 acres. These cats couldn't survive in the wild. Most don't have claws and their teeth have been smashed. Here, they'll get fed and they can bask in a world of new experiences. Many had never stepped on grass, had never touched a tree, life's simple pleasures long denied.
3: Now, an update on a story we called Passports for Sale. In January, Steve Croft reported how some small countries earn revenue selling passports, even diplomatic passports, to a rogues' gallery of scoundrels, fugitives, and tax cheats. On the Caribbean island of Dominica, he spoke with Lennox Linton, a member of parliament. I assume that you've asked the prime minister... Yes.
1: ...how he ended up appointing these people diplomats. Yes. And what was the answer?
5: The Prime Minister doesn't answer those questions.
3: On Dominica, our story, the resulting political demonstrations and the arrest of an international fugitive traveling on a Dominican diplomatic passport prompted some reforms. The Prime Minister has announced a tightening of passport rules. Now, wealthy foreigners seeking diplomatic passports will at least be checked for a criminal record and must report the source of their funds. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes,
0: you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
3: Look around. You can
5: find cars like these on AutoTrader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader
2: listen to the 48 hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.